I want to begin by making a public announcement that I am overly excited about the fact that I am giving up. You know, I am throwing in the towel. I am giving up on everything in life I knew before. I am beyond grateful for this opportunity, and I cannot wait to see where this decision leads me. Now, what I actually just did was just explain one of the aspects of faith. Uh, understanding that you cannot do it on your own, knowing that you need God to let go and to let God. Now, I am being facetious, uh, but sadly, we rarely hear people speak in this manner when it talks about coming to Christ. Now, if you've been here with us at Moody Church, you've had the pleasure all summer of going through eight major miracles. Uh, to give you a summary of this summer's messages, we've had the pleasure of being ministered to by the speakers, but more importantly, by the Word and the Spirit of God and the Scriptures where we see Jesus turn water to wine, actually walk on water, garrison the demonic, heal the paralytic, drop through the roof, roof heal the boy with an unclean spirit, feed the 5,000, which was more like 10 to 15,000 if you count the uh, women and children. He even raised a man from the dead named Lazarus, and today we see Jesus is not done. Even though most scholars would define this uh, latter part of Jesus' life as the latter portion of his ministry, uh, we see that Jesus is making his way into Jericho, which is the tax collection capital at the time. And on the way, he even heals a blind man by giving him his sight. But there's so much more to this text, and we'll get into it today. Now, I would ask you to please join me in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 35. Uh, again, that is Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 35. And our message for today... It's titled, The Blind Do Indeed See. The Blind Do Indeed See. Where we find a sequence of four events that totally changed this man's life, and hopefully today they help to change yours as well. Please join me in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty Father in heaven, we come before your throne this day and every day of our lives, dependent on you, whether we realize it or not. I ask that your Holy Spirit go before me, Father, and soften the hardened hearts, Put at ease the busy minds. <sighs> May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable unto you, my Lord, my strength, and my Redeemer. Now, I know I had you go to Luke 18, and that's fine. You know, make sure you stay there or at least bookmark it. Uh, but before I can get into that scripture for today, I need to give you some much-needed context. Now, going back to the beginning, you know, take it back to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. As we know, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and the Holy Spirit literally descends upon him in the physical form of a dove. He begins his messianic journey, fulfilling his messianic prophecy. Then Jesus begins a fast in the wilderness for 40 days. At the end of it, at his weakest moment physically, he is then tempted by Satan himself. However, immediately after this 40-day period in tempting, the scriptures immediately transition to Jesus' ministry in Galilee, where it picks up in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21, where it reads, and I state, Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogue, being acclaimed by everyone. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, 
this scripture has been fulfilled. Now, we need to understand that after Jesus is baptized and tempted, he returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Not defeated, but in the power of the Spirit, and he teaches in the synagogue. And in our Bibles, uh, the very first thing you see Jesus say, if you have one that outlines his speech in red, is a quote from Isaiah 61, which literally describes what he is coming to do, but more importantly, literally describes how he is about to heal Bartimaeus' sight. Prophetic miracle. Yes, Jesus referenced the passage from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verse 1 and 2. Yes, 800 years go by from the writing of the book of Isaiah to the writing of the book of Luke, 740 B.C. to 60 A.D. And yes, Jesus is fulfilling Scripture. Now, this entire summer, we've had the pleasure of going through these miracles. We see prophetic fulfillment in our day, today, and we treat it as just another moment. We see miracles play out right before our faces, and we have come to the conclusion or to the point where we take them for granted, and our thinking says that they don't actually exist. I don't care how much you take oxygen for granted, uh, which is a miracle, by the way. I don't know anyone in this world who's saying oxygen. Oxygen don't exist. Oxygen. Who needs oxygen, oxygen in these days? So I want you to understand that perception does not always equal reality. God's hand is at work, miracle. Fulfillment of his scripture is upon us, miracle. The authority of God cannot be challenged, reality. Please join me back in Luke 18, beginning in verse 35 to 37, where we find this uh, first event that changed this man's life, he heard. Now, beginning in verse 35, as he drew near Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road. Hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what this meant. Jesus the Nazarene is passing by, they told him. Now this man, from Scripture tells us in the other synoptic gospels of Matthew and Mark, is known as Bartimaeus. Him being blind would have been uh, lower than the shepherds in their society, and he is a Jewish man who has been blind since birth. Now, it's important to note that when you read the Greek text in the Septuagint, it describes Bartimaeus as begging, but he was not a beggar. So it's important to understand the, uh, the context of language. Now, being Jewish and being blind from birth, Bartimaeus would have had a, a front row seat, basically, to be a candidate for receiving alms from the rest of the Jewish culture. Now, this was one of the many systems of welfare set up by God himself to provide for all his people. Now, he is asking for alms on the road to Jericho, a tax collection capital. Passover was nearing. All the adult males were called to Jerusalem. So you literally got to go through Jericho if you want to get, through, you know, get to Jerusalem. So it sounds like a pretty good place to make some money if, if, if you, know, you think about it. This would have been the busiest time of the year. And this blind man is smart enough to have a strategic spot on the road. Now, trust me when I say that when you have physical or mental limitations, it appears that you have to do even more to get noticed for the right reasons. Now, this man is blind, and he cannot see anyone, and people with sight seemingly don't see him. Bartimaeus was totally dependent on others' mercy to provide for his financial gain, his livelihood, he was also totally dependent on the surrounding crowd to give him a description of what was taking place as Jesus passed him on this road into Jericho. I got a question, quick question. Have you strategically placed yourself on the path of life not to miss God passing you, not to miss God's blessing, not to miss your life-changing moment? 
Bartimaeus was following regulations set up by God himself. Following God's word will put you on God's path. He heard a noticeably big difference in the already bustling crowd, but by, by, by him, he didn't remain silent. He put this pride to the side. He asked, what is going on? And they replied by telling him, it is Jesus the Nazarene passing by. Now, our translation of Jesus comes from the Latin term or the Latin word or Latin, you know, I guess, yeah, term or Greek, Aesus, which is at best, at best a rendition uh, to the Hebrew original name Yeshua, meaning Savior. And it also translates to Joshua if you uh, have a name in Joshua in, in English. By putting the Nazarene title on Jesus, the crowd is basically saying, this not just Joshua, you know. This is not your ordinary, everyday Joshua. This is the Joshua that has been doing all the miracles, healing people, feeding the multitudes, captivating us with his teaching. He might be a prophet, they say. Maybe Elijah come again. Some say he is the Messiah spoken of in Scripture. Who knows? But we know he's special. Now, it's odd that the crowd of Jews that were standing there, they were all around. They were supposed to be waiting for their Messiah and they couldn't recognize the creator in their midst. But Bartimaeus did. Which brings us to our second event, found in verse 38 through 39. He called. Picking back up in verse 38. So Jesus, I'm sorry, so he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those in the front told him to keep quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Now the theologian and scholar, Daryl Bach, whose life's work, or as Pastor Butler would say, his magnum opus is a commentary on the book of Luke. Now, I do warn you, you do need to be in physically, uh, physically fit shape to pick up these two books. But however, Bach states that, and I quote, the knowledge that Jesus is near is an opportunity for the blind man. So he cries out. The blind man knows something about Jesus, for his cry stands in contrast to the crowd's description of Jesus of Nazareth. The blind man's plea for mercy is a request for compassion and healing. The need for mercy is often associated with sin, and sometimes mercy is needed because the plight is particularly desperate. Now, the Luke Cain example of this cry uh, of the lepers found in 1713, and also the rich man's plea from hell in 1624, they show the impact of Bartimaeus' cry. It's the same context, the same word being used. This is not just some loud wailing, oh my God, or Jesus, Jesus. This is direct. This is focused. This is controlled. Don't, don't miss that. And that's just the cry for mercy. I wonder today, what would need to take place in our lives for us to cry out to God? For us to cry out to Jesus, for us to cry to the Holy Spirit in this same manner. Now, hypothetically, we're speaking in hypothetics here. Can you imagine having to cry out from, to God from the lowest pit of hell there is? And this ain't the, the pit of misery that you find in the Bud Light commercials, dilly dilly. This is definitely different. Now, let me be the first to tell you that here and now, here and now today, the cry that you yell out to and for God with needs to be louder than any cry you can ever replicate from hell. And here's why. And I'll give you an analogy. Now, my mother, who's here today, is not this new age type parent. You know, she didn't uh, give us 
timeouts or we didn't debate with her on, you know, who, what, whatever. None of that. No, no, that's not happening in our house. It's just not. So me and my sisters, we got disciplined, which is actually biblical because that's what it is. Scripture tells you that you do not spare the rod from someone that you love, your child. So if you love them, you discipline them. So basically, we got whooped in the name of Jesus. So and uh, afterwards, you know, when you got nurtured or whatever the case may be, but when she was whooping you or it was whooping time or whatever, you could scream till your lungs popped out. You know, she wasn't stopping. It, it just wasn't happening. So, you know, it, it's time to go. It, it's nothing you can do about it. So I'm crying. I'm begging. I'm pleading. Mama, mama, mama. I'm putting on a show. You can just give me the Grammy for the actor of the year because I wanted my mother to notice I was contrite. You know, I wanted her to show me some mercy. You know, it didn't work all the time, but, you know, you get the gist of it. So my point is this. Uh, the time to cry is not when the damage is done and when there's no coming back from it. The time to cry is, well, I'm sorry, the time to cry is when you notice the mistake, when you are still in the position to plead for compassion, to plead for the mercy, to plead for the healing that you are crying for and in need of anyway. Bartimaeus is physically blind, but spiritually, he got 20-20 vision. <laughs> he knows that Jesus is the Messiah. He cries out, son of David. Sorry, got a little loud. Have mercy on me. Son of David is a messianic title of great significance, and it's very important. Even though in the book of Luke, Jesus is associated with David, this title, this public confession is the one and only time it takes place in the book of Luke. He basically called Jesus God. How did I get that? I'm glad you asked. So if we go to, well, no, this is it. God himself said that he was going to be the Messiah, right? Give me some, you know, you, you can say amen or give me some interaction. You know, you ain't got to be quiet. I'm a student, but I'm a, I'm a person too. Now, he said his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, God himself said he was coming back. God himself said that he would rescue his flock in Ezekiel 34.10. This is what he states. I will rescue my flock from their mouths, and it will no longer be food for them. Now, I know this is in the context of God eliminating the false teaching, the maniacal rule of the religious leaders of that day. But from this scripture and others like it, the fact is that in order for God, well, for any change to happen, God is going to be the direct effect. God is going to be the driving force for any of that change. Did the coming of the Messiah mark and reflect that change spoken by God going all the way back to Genesis 3, the fall of man? Yes, it does. And God is also producing change in the life of Bartimaeus. His public confession of Jesus, son of David, is a confession that takes great faith. Great faith. You have to understand in a time where others had been healed by Jesus and were afraid to say who they actually had been healed by, here Bartimaeus has no issue with shouting it in front of everyone. Now, when it comes to your faith, and the way that faith is displayed, are you too worried about how people, sinful people at that, are going to look at you and critique? People that cannot give you eternal salvation, people that cannot give you a true and loving relationship, people that cannot keep your feet from the flames of life, let alone the flames of hell, people who speak to you out of the book of Second Opinions, chapter 9, 1, 1, emergency, watch out. Bartimaeus cries out to the Lord. 
He is told to be quiet by the crowd who was supposed to be encouraging him and all people to come to the Savior. The blind man's cries are met with popular rebuke. (laughs) From the scripture, we see the picture being painted that everyone present is literally telling this man to shut up, mind your business, to leave Jesus alone. (laughs) Too often people in the church today are contributing factors keeping other people in the church from spiritual growth. Where's that trinket? Oh. Pray for us. And I said we. I said we. You would think that the disciples knew better too, right? But they didn't. However, right before this healing, Bartimaeus in Luke chapter, well, no, right before this healing of Bartimaeus, in Luke chapter 18, verse 16, children were being brought to Jesus, and the disciples, they rebuked them as well. Bartimaeus was, well, I'm sorry, Bartimaeus makes his plea to Jesus, Jesus, and it was met with confrontation, with opposition, with rejection. But not from the one he was asking. (laughs) Which brings us to the third event that forever changed the life of Bartimaeus. He was healed. Jesus, picking back up in verse 40, I'm sorry. Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. When he drew near, he asked, he asked him, what do you want me to do? to do for you. Lord, he said, I want to see. Receive your sight, Jesus told him. Your faith has healed you. First thing I want you all to notice is that Jesus stops. Now, the power and authority in the universe, like, like it just, you got my attention. He stops. Now, this man and his plea are important enough to God that it literally stops Jesus in his tracks. Secondly, which if it wasn't followed, you know, previous by by something with God, this would be first, the man is blind. Now, we don't know exactly, you know, how far away from Jesus he was, but Jesus being Jesus does Jesus stuff, and he commands the very people who were trying to shut him up, who were trying to keep him away, to bring them near. Ain't that something? So Jesus, imagine this. Jesus is walking through Jericho. He got some theme music playing or something like that, like all superheroes do. And, uh, you know, it's the busiest time of the year. You know, Passover is, is, is here. So behind him are the 12 disciples who will later on become the 12 apostles. Behind them are a multitude of people following Jesus because they know what he has done, not because they know who he is. You know, let's make that clear. For a Savior who heals people then tells them to shh, Go on about your life quietly. Here, this is in contrast to that. He might as well have healed the man at uh, an NBA Finals game, center court, because all eyes were on Jesus. Not Tupac. I don't know if you know who that is or not. But (laughs) Jesus is not asking Bartimaeus what he needs because he doesn't know. He is asking him to garnish a certain type of a response. In all likelihood, when Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He is saying, how can I help you and be specific? Not pray for the church, not pray for the house, pray for the cat and dog. No, I'm not saying don't pray for those things, but no, those are generalities. And the faith he has been healed in is a direct representative of the seriousness in which he takes Jesus by calling him son of David. Some of us have not because we ask not. And some of us have not because we don't understand the authority of the one we are asking. What do you need in your life? In your life right now, in particular, 
And are you willing to cry out like never before in order to receive it? Oh, wow, that's me on that. Okay, that's crazy. (laughs) Jesus heals this man, but not only does he heal him physically, as we'll see from the scripture, he's going to also heal him spiritually. And lastly, we come to our fourth and final event that would change this blind man's life forever. He followed. Picking up in verse 43. Instantly, he could see. And he began to follow him, glorifying God. All the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Quick thing real quick. It says they gave praise to God. They were Jews. It did not say that they gave praise to Jesus. Okay, so watch that. Earlier in the scripture, Jesus heals a blind man by basically spit-shining his eyes with mud and slop. And, and then he did it twice. So don't know why exactly that is. Uh, if someone tells you any different, that's a calculated guess. So let me, let me give it a shot. Now, I believe earlier in the Gospels of Matthew, Matthew is writing to show that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. That's why, well, that's one of the reasons he gives you the genealogy of Jesus. However, here in Luke, Luke's main idea is to show you the power and authority of God. Did he not have power and authority in Matthew? That's not what I or the text is saying. But when you read the Bible, you have to read it as a narrative. You know, kind of like this message I'm giving you today, it's a narrative sermon. Uh, It's a story. It's a breakdown of a story, a true story, but a story indeed. Now, Every story has a plot, a focal point, and a message that the author is trying to convey. And in this story, we can see that there is more to it than meets the eyes. As soon as Bartimaeus receives his sight, he begins to follow Jesus mentally, physically, spiritually, and literally. From what we can see, he follows Jesus through Jericho, Matthew 19, 1, until Jesus leaves and beyond. The same Greek word which describes us as followers of Christ, describes Bartimaeus, he began to follow him. Bartimaeus made a right decision, a smart decision. He became a disciple. Hallelujah! That's what he was saying. Praise the name of God all through Jericho. Amen. He was the type of man who was like a hype man at a concert, the host, the introducer. He was yelling the goodness of the Lord throughout Jericho and from what we see for the rest of his natural life. How did I get that? I'm glad you asked again. Man, you guys are knocking out the box with all these questions. You know, these four, these four events are literally laid out you know, to be events that are not events of the past. These are all ongoing events in the life of Bartimaeus, and they should also be ongoing events in the life of every follower of Christ. See, at first, he heard something about Jesus. Now he is a disciple. He will forever hear his word. At first, he called out to Jesus, and now he will forever call upon his holy name. See, at first, he sought to be healed and given his sight by Jesus, and now he will forever be healed of his sins. At first, he followed Jesus throughout the city of Jericho for the rest of his natural life. And one day, he will follow Jesus into eternity and into the heavens above. Amen. Amen. He heard. He called. He was healed. He followed. I know what you're thinking. So with that being said, how can, how does, or how should this message affect you?
What's the big idea? What's the takeaway for you and I to apply to our lives? How is God a loving, merciful God and willing to allow pain into this world? It's a question that I tried to ask myself a lot, and here's one of the answers. The question, or the answer basically is, everything created has one major purpose. And that purpose is to bring glory to God. Now, in your obedience or disobedience, God does get the glory. And I'm not going to ask you a question behind that one, don't worry. But period, he gets the glory. He will either bring you into a loving relationship with him and be glorified, or he will cast you into hell, and the ones who choose him for the relationship they have with him will glorify him all the more. I know what I'm saying, and I know what you might be thinking. I know what some of you are thinking. Does God use pain? Does God use suffering? Does God use a person's handicap? Does God use the depravity of your sins? Does God use sickness? Does God use starvation? And many other things to bring you, me, whoever, into a loving, dependent relationship with him. Yes. Yes, he does. If you believe for a second that as we live now, God after the fall of man wishes, man wishes for you to always live comfortably without pain or to have it easy, you are mistaken, sadly mistaken, because the only thing easy in this life is his yoke. Remember? And I have never seen anyone grow from a comfortable moment. Think about it. Bartimaeus was blind from birth, cast out by society, helpless to the will of others. You don't think he had dreams? You know, he probably, well, I don't know if they had basketball. He just wanted to, you know, do some rock throwing or something. But you don't think he had desires? You don't think he had visions of things he'd rather be other than being blind from birth? He might have wanted to marry a woman. He might have wanted to have children. But disability in that day, much like today, is a stigma and an abnormality looked down upon. He might have wanted to become a Pharisee, you know, a religious leader. But he was blind. So you got to remember, disability or in that time was a sin, you know, either by him or his parents. So therefore, he would not have been welcomed. And at the very moment, at the very moment, at the very moment, I did it three times. That means it's important. He had everything he could ever wish, hope, and pray for, his sight. He followed Yeshua Manesh, the anointed Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs> now, maybe you have everything you want. You know, think you have all that you need, you know, like I did. Money, power, respect, the fear of others. You know, I sold drugs. I trafficked women. I hurt people. Uh, I never took the short end of a stick. It was all about me. Uh, it wasn't my upbringing because, you know, they taught me better. I just made the wrong choices. I made my own choices. Like the man who worked on the Manhattan Project to create the first nuclear bomb, I can honestly say, and I quote, I was the destroyer of life. I thought I had everything I needed. I'm happy now, despite coming to the realization everything I thought was real was wrong. You see, I was trapped up in this game where I thought I was a king, but what I looked and seen was a pawn. <laughs> yeah, I was rhyming for you a little bit. Now, for the last 12 years, 
I can't fathom to explain the level of pain or the circumstances I've been through. And uh, be honest, you wouldn't be able to understand it if I did. But now I have joy in God, not without pain, not without suffering, because of the truth he has shown me. So what's, what's your problem? What's your problem? What's your problem? <laughs> you know, is it because you can't afford the class Mercedes Benz you would prefer to drive in? You only have two bedrooms. You have a job and you have to work 40 hours a week. Woe is me. I have to walk to work. Really? There's people out here that would just love to walk. I'm going to be honest with you. If I ever start walking again, I will never get in another car to save my life because I would enjoy walking so much. So do not take it for granted. Now, one way or the other, God will get the glory. One way or the other, we see what's true and real. One way or the other, we got to praise him. We got to praise him, saints. Because it doesn't matter when or how you came into relationship with God. What matters is that you have a relationship with God. Let's do it today, and we'll all be glad that we did. Amen? Amen. Now, we are here today because, you know, we either have that relationship or we want it to grow. And... Uh, or we're seeking that relationship. For those who have made their confessions of faith and have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, we have the honor and the privilege in partaking in the Lord's Supper. It's a, it's, don't take that for granted either. Now, this is not a request from Jesus when he says, do this in remembrance of him. It is an imperative. It's a command. So I ask that you pray individually amongst yourselves before we begin to pass this out or before, uh, you know, you, you take it, take the communion and ask God for any forgiveness of transgressions that might be in your heart and begin to prepare your mind, your heart, and our souls to receive him. Let us pray. Almighty Father, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our Lord, our Messiah, in spirit and in truth, we thank you for your word for the opportunity we have to fellowship, and more importantly, for the relationship we find in you, Father. I ask that you bring us closer to you, and if there is someone here tonight or in the world who does not know Jesus Christ, I beg you, Father, I beg to reveal yourself as only you can. We thank you, and we love you, and as a church, we all say together, amen.